This is T. Earl Grey Hart, an unofficial Star Trek fan podcast from the Other Side Podcast Network. The Examples Hello and welcome to episode 97 of T. Earl Grey Hot, an unofficial Star Trek fan podcast from the Other Side Podcast Network. My name is Dave and I am joined this time around by someone who does, someone who does require a humongous quantity of energy just to get going in the morning. It's my good friend, yes. Yannick. <laughs> yes, indeed, Hi, Yannick. I do. Yes. I well, actually have my liquid energy for this show. Yeah. Is, is it? Yes. The, the, the dark liquid. Yes, the yes. dark liquid. And do you require a humongous quantity of coffee to get going? I do require a humongous quantity of coffee all day long. <laughs> <laughs> but I would like to point out, for the benefit of those listening to the podcast, that at the time of recording, it is now exactly 10 to 10 in the evening, Central European time. All right, and Yannick is drinking coffee. Uh, let me ask you, Yannick, is this decaffeinated coffee? No. No. <laughs> it's so, proper coffee. I, th- I think the general guidelines is don't consume caffeine after 4 p.m. And then. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it's not 4 p.m. yet somewhere. <laughs> oh, my goodness me. So this is, this is going to be interesting, I think. Well, as it is every time, because this is normal behavior for Yannick. Am I right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, so on this episode, we are going to be reviewing Star Trek Discovery Season 4, Episode 5, The Examples. And as always, what an absolute cracking episode. Yeah. Uh, uh, we'll talk about that with, after. With caveats, yes. Yeah, with caveats. With caveats, yes. Um, yeah, so uh, shall we just crack on with it then? Yeah. I mean, we've set a goal in, in the, the teaser or in the pre-production meetings we had. Like We said, yeah, we can do that in 45 minutes. Uh, we've done two record, three recordings too? This two is recording three, yes. Yeah, so we've done two recordings, each of, of which were over two hours. So yeah, let's, let's go. Let's, let's crack on with it. Yes, let's do that. So then, in the teaser of this episode, we see the USS Janeway I don't know where they got that name from. Coming into <laughs> coming into visual range of the dark matter anomaly when they detect massive ionic fluctuations. The NSS to POW, don't know where they got that name from, confirms Janeway's readings and also detects a spike in X-ray radiation just as the DMA suddenly disappears right in front of them. Poof. Yeah, precisely that. Now, I know it's very early to start criticising... <laughs> no, criticizing the episode, but the the operator from the NSS to POW uttered the words, "What the hell just happened?" Yeah, which for a Nivar citizen seems to kind of work against the whole emotion suppression thing. 
because that was a very emotional response. But that was probably a very, very, very big surprise. <laughs> I mean, see when this you, thing that when you put it that way, yeah, <laughs> it's this thing they thought were an, a natural phenomenon just disappeared in front of their eyes. Yeah. So, I guess even a Vulcan or uh, uh, how do you, how are they called now? The Nivarians Nivarian? or whatever Nivarians? the them yeah. enemies. Uh, yeah, they they would they would be surprised and they. I guess my guess is that we got a filtered version of, of what really happened. <laughs> like a politically correct version. Of, we of do that. know for a fact that swearing is still a thing in the 33rd yeah. century because yeah. Tilly has proven it to us. <laughs> <laughs> Although she came from Numerous the 20, whatever it was, yes. uh, 22nd century. So maybe true. Uh, 23rd century, sorry. So maybe it's it's more of a an inherited thing than something that's uh, that's natural. Maybe, yeah. Four point two seconds later, <laughs> that was a lot yeah. more than four point two seconds. That yeah, uh, that's what I thought when it was like four point two seconds. My rerun. <laughs> yes, four point two seconds later, it re- reappeared on the sensors, having moved one thousand light years. Captain Burnham asks if it was the same anomaly. Stamets confirms the scans are identical and notes that the odds of an identical anomaly were virtually nil. How, how can he know that? I mean, they don't know anything about the anomaly. It could be that wherever that thing comes from, it's just a standard ship or, or thing. I, I kind of get where he's coming from with it, because if you have an event occurring in space and you have another event occurring in space, the chances of them being identical are virtually nil. Because, yeah. although having said that, it's probably more likely than if it occurred on Earth, because things are more constant in space, Yeah, I suppose. But, but also you've got one giant thing somewhere in space disappears, reappears four point two-ish seconds after like millions of light years farther they said that in, 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 the, in this sequence it breaks every law of physics they know of yes right? yes so it is not illogical to think that maybe one disappeared and another one appeared I don't know they're missing a Vulcan on this ship what yeah. Burnham is kind of a Vulcan, but not. She was raised on Vulcan. She's she was raised as a Vulcan. As a Vulcan on Vulcan, but yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean she she displays no emotion ever, right? No, never. No. Burnham asks Zora to cross-reference the sphere data to see if any other such events have ever occurred naturally. Zora says no. So if this wasn't a natural phenomenon, Burnham realises there's only one logical conclusion, and that's that somebody created it. Boom. That was a mind blow. No, it wasn't. (laughs) Now, is this the first time we've actually seen a proper conversational interaction with Zora. 
Not this counting year, yes. the short treks. Um, I don't recall the end of, of the previous season, but no, I think Zora started, started having conversations in the, either in the first episodes uh, of this season or the, 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 the very end of last season. Okay, it's it's been it's been really quiet. I mean, I've watched rewatched season. No, I haven't. I've rewatched episode one and two of this season, mm-hmm. and I don't recall. I don't recall Zora even speaking. No, but I think it was at the end of the previous season when they discovered that she, well, it had the um, the knowledge, the sphere knowledge. Yes, so. yes. Well, she she was That's when. That's when it started Ooh. speaking. Ah, that's right. Because she she was the embodiment of the sphere data. Yeah. But that happened last season. Yes. Was it last season they had the movie night? I believe so. Because I think that was actually Zora's suggestion, if I remember rightly. Yep. Right, uh-huh. okay. In which case, I rescind my comment. Yes. The DMA is now near the Radvek asteroid belt, a former emerald chain colony populated by the Akali. The colony itself is right at the edge, edge of the DMA impact zone. One degree, one way or the other, could lead to either safety or death, with no way to tell for certain until it was already too late. So the colony had to be evacuated within the next four hours. Even though the Akali were not members of the Federation, the Federation was the only body capable of carrying out a mission of this size. Vance is preparing to divert all available ships in the region to carry out the evacuation, as well as discovery led by Burnham. Yeah. So in four hours, they need to get in touch with the colony, convince them that there's like a giant galactic big thingy that's going to maybe or maybe not destroy their colony and have everyone out of there. I don't know. I I think it seems to me that four hours is, is already too late to do all that. You, you, yes, I think four hours doesn't. It does seem a little bit quick. Yeah, but I don't see how they could have padded it out. Padded it out any more. In essence, well, removing the urgency of needing to get them out there in the first place. True. You, I suppose you could get away with eight, maybe. But then the next part of the storyline, or effectively the whole episode. You're not going to really feel the urgency if you're spreading it over eight hours. It's true. But given that their 4.2 seconds lasted like half a minute, <laughs> yeah, I guess they, <laughs> they had time to. Something's, something is wrong with the, uh, the clocks on, on this episode. How do we know that in the 33rd century, Four hours is 240 of our minutes. Yeah, but let's not go there because they still count in hours and days in, in, in periods of 24 hours when, when 
a day is a revolution of the Earth on itself, which doesn't make any sense anywhere else in the universe. Precisely. But, but yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm going to bring a, a, a later scene here just for a second. But there's a scene later on when one of the characters says, I have a two o'clock. Yes. How can you tell it's two o'clock? Well, as I said earlier, it's two o'clock somewhere. Uh, it could have been two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. We wouldn't I have known. Know. Yeah. But anyways. Yes. Federation Security has identified a number of possible civilizations capable of creating the DMA, including the Metrons, the Nacine, or the remnants of the Iconians. It was even suggested that the Q Continuum may have been involved, but they've not been heard heard from in about 600 years, and this was unlike anything that they had done before. But for now, those responsible are being classified as Unknown Species 10C. So... What happened to unknown species 1 to 9 and 10A and 10B? That was exactly my question. It did seem a little bit random. And why 10C and 11? 10 11 (laughs) or 42? I don't know. Yeah. Unknown species 47. That would have been been a a clever choice. Might have been a little bit too obvious, I suppose. Yeah, well, I'm just having to please the fans from time to, from time to time. But they wouldn't have done that unless there was a reason to do it. Uh, and I'm just literally glancing through the species 10C article on Memory Alpha at the moment, and it mm-hmm. doesn't actually tell anything about any other um, unclassified species. Nah, I don't think we learn anything about these species until the end of the season. I would say specifically the episode entitled Species 10C. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) By the way, for those listening, before you go clamoring to find the article called Species 10C uh, on Memory Alpha, it contains a boatload of spoilers. Just saying. Yeah. (laughs) Spoilers for a series that was uh, aired like an, a year ago or something. Ah, uh, but I, I, I predict there is at least one person. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change that. I predict that there is one person who is holding back on these episodes to follow our review and not jump ahead. So, you know, uh-huh. we, we have a responsibility, even we an do. obligation to that one person to not spoil it for them. Yes. So, you listeners... Listener who waited for us to review this uh, season to watch the episode, do not read the article on Memory Alpha. <laughs> do you think that there's a chance that that one person that waits for us to review the episode is also the one listener we have? <laughs> I th- I, if, if we only have one listener... I think that is a fair deduction that that the wouldn't be the one listener who who's really holding serious. for us as well. Yeah. <laughs> Unless we have two listeners, in which case our original <laughs> hypothesis is inaccurate. Well, we never know. No. 47. 
<laughs> Admiral Vance says that the priority should now be figuring out the technology behind the DMA, and that's why Ruan Tarka has been brought in to advise Starfleet. He was heading a number of scientific endeavours, including the Next Generation Spore Drive, working in concert with Aurelio, who we met in Season 3. Yes. Stamets is a bit put out that Tarka has not engaged with him over the Spore Drive, and believes he already has the people he needs to solve the mystery of the DMA. But Vance believes someone at the leading edge of both Federation and non-Federation technology was required, and that Stamets would find him a valuable asset. Yeah, we, he was not too pleased when he heard the news. Uh, but because, probably because Darka never uh, got back to him about the uh, sport drive. But I think also, you know, you're, you're in charge, uh, he's in charge of, uh, of this DMA thing on, on, on Discovery. And then suddenly someone comes and, uh, and he's told, well, now you're going to work with this person who's a, a really good and then is really a, an expert on the, Subject, uh, I think we it's kind of a, a battle of ego or something. Completely, it, it, he he clearly feels threatened by this person, who the Federation has potentially trust entrusted more in than Stamets. Add that to the fact yeah. that Tarker is also working on the next generation of Spore Drive that does not require an operator. Yeah, then actually. What Tarker is doing is completely at odds with why Stamets exists, really. Yeah, and uh, well, he, he already had this conversation conversation with Book when when mm. Book were, um, figured out he was uh, able to, to to drive the sport drive drive. Yeah, that's right. It, but anyway, it's the same um, thing again. It's the same thing. Yeah. Aboard his ship, Booker insists to Burnham that more needed to... Right, so this is where I've rewritten this and completely forgotten how to use words. Aboard his ship... this is where we are not going to edit the show. (laughs) (laughs) So we're leaving all this good stuff in. Yeah. Aboard his ship, Booker insists to Burnham that more is needed to be done to figure out the DMA, to find whoever is responsible and stop them. Burnham promises him that they would, but for now, they had to focus on evacuating the people from Radvek 5. Booker volunteers to help with that, feeling the need to do something so that no one else had to suffer the loss of their home and people as he did. Yeah. Yeah, he said in the previous episode that he was getting better, but it doesn't really show in this episode. I mean, he's a little bit... um, his mood is a little bit lighter, apparently, but uh, it still shows on his face that he's, uh, he's still grieving. He still needs to find a reason. I think he, he needs, he need, as he said, he needs to do something. Um, and being stuck on a spaceship, I don't think it's very really good for his, uh, his mental health. No, totally not. And he said that to... Colbert? I think it was Colbert, um, in episode three, that he was really struck, uh, might be episode four, that he was really struggling with, um, with the whole situation, feelings of mm. guilt, feelings of remorse. Could he have done anything? Yeah. Uh, 
and yeah, he he said a number of times now that he needs to be he needs to be be useful. Yeah, and to try and find out. There's a lot of things he needs to close off, and mm-hmm. getting involved is possibly the only thing he's got. Yeah, true. On the bridge, Burnham addresses the entire ship, and she explains the mission to evacuate the Radvek chain before the DMA rendered transport impossible. And they now only had three and a half hours to do it. Yeah, that the DMA rendering the, the, the transport impossible, it's it's a massive it's a massive object or a massive phenomenon. So yeah, well I guess it could be electromagnetic interference and not yet gravitational interference. Because I was thinking, if they can't transport, then maybe the uh, discovery is in danger too. You know, with this big thing coming. And Dave is well, dropping. So if you're <laughs> listening this uh, on the podcast, you could be playing with us and doing exclamation mark drop in our Twitch channel to try and beat the 72.11 points that they've just scored. Yes, which has now beaten your score. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to have to do the same now while you do the review. But, yeah. (sighs) Yes, absolutely. The, The discovery will be at phenomenal risk if they hang around. So it's not I think the 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 time limitation for transport is going to be equally the fact that their transport to transporters won't function as the as a discovery <laughs> seemingly not be able to function because it's been destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's broken. It's, yeah, to c- complete brokes. Yes. Uh, That was the end of the teaser, and uh, the last line before we uh, went to the teaser by Burnham was, let's go save some lives. Yeah. Much better than let's let's fly. fly. (laughs) (laughs) Okie dokie, on to Act 1 then. Saru reports that there are 1,206 individuals on the surface waiting for evacuation. Booker points out that the transport array could only bring up 40 people at a time, which is going to cut it close. So 40 people at a time, that's 31 transports. That's a lot of transports. Yeah, but, I mean, during Kirk's era, a transport would take, I don't know, 10, 15 seconds. Yes. But now they just transport instantly. So. I don't really see the problem in the transport itself. The problem would be to gather people, have them stand still, you know, don't panic, and things like that. Right. But the whole thing of going click and you've been transported, well, I don't think it, I think it takes slightly longer than that because you need the actual transport to take place. You get dematerialized, transferred, then rematerialized. When we watch it, there's probably about three to four seconds between the two. 
But when you're talking about 40 people, and I think the most I've ever seen transported using this mechanism at one time is six, maybe seven. Um, 40 may take a bit longer, probably closer to the 10, 15 seconds that the yeah. Enterprise 1701 would have taken to trans- transport one person. And come to think of it, um, they can quickly transport Starfleet personnel because they have their badges, their com badge. So they're they're probably locked on the badges anyway. But to transport civilians, you you're gonna have to lock on their life signs, and then do that forty times. Try to not mix any molecules in in the transport, and rematerialize everyone. Yeah, so yeah, mm. could, could probably take a, a yeah. little bit longer. If only we had a transport uh, specialist on on call, but no, we don't. So, yeah, Miles O'Brien, if you're listening to this. (laughs) Although, I think we're a bit early for uh, for Miles O'Brien. Early? Oh, late. Uh, Early? 20... uh, Towards the end of the 20th, 23rd century. Uh, Hang on. Oh, yeah. Towards the 23rd century. We as in we. Not we as in the series. No, no, no. We as in we. Yes. Yes. As in in the timeline. Yes. No, as in in our timeline. In our timeline, yes. yeah. Well, it's the timeline. We could probably get Cole Mainly, but that's not quite the same, is it? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, it's played, it's played O'Brien for like, I don't know, seven, ten years. What do you mean played? I think he knows a thing or two. Hmm? Are you saying he's 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 a he's an actor? <laughs> Miles O'Brien's not real. No, he's not. He's <gasps> real. He's real. Let's, Thank you. Wow. Move on with the review. <laughs> I was about to walk off in a huff. No. <laughs> the Akali magistrate is on comms and is grateful to see Burnham, as the colony had already sent off all of their ships with only a quarter of their population. The remainder are waiting and have begun to panic. Not surprising. Don't panic. But that suggests... They obviously, never, they obviously never read the Shaker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's written on the cover. Don't panic. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> well. I have not on. read Shaker's Guide yeah, to the no. Galaxy yet. It's on did, my did reading you, list. Didn't you... Download or listen to the uh, the podcast on BBC podcast thingy. I have a copy of it, I believe. Ah, okay. Um, kindly donated by a friend who shall remain nameless for his own protection. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's only, a, I think, it's only a, pas- a partial. Uh, Hikers Gate, but it's 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 a good podcast. Well, it'll be a dramatization, won't it? So it won't be the whole yeah the whole book. No books, the five part trilogy. Good. Is that right? Yes, yes. See, I remember that. <laughs> Saru then reports six stationary life signs underground, far from the evacuation point. The magistrate identifies them as the examples in the colony's prison. When Burnham insists they must be evacuated as well, the magistrate dismisses them as criminals, noting that they were chosen to demonstrate the cost of misbehaviour, a tradition they inherited from the Emerald Chain. 
Both Booker and Burnham are adamant that they should not be left to die, but the magistrate remains firm, saying that the prison was automated and anyone who knew the systems had already left, and reminding them that the law-abiding citizens were waiting for them before closing the channel. I'm like, so wow. There's there's a prison on the colony, and there's like two people knowing how to operate it. So what happened when those people go on vacation, or they you know they break a leg and need need, need to stay home, or I don't know, need to go back to see family? <laughs> it doesn't matter because nobody cares about them anyway. Yes, true. <laughs> Seemingly. Seemingly, yeah. Yes. So I I had this this inexplicable urge to reach into the television and slap him on the face. Oh yeah. Um uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Me too. It was like oh no. It's one of those Yes. I get closure later, so I'm happy. Burnham instructs Saru to assemble a team to assist the evacuation while she and Booker went to the prison. Commander Reese speaks up to volunteer to lead the evacuation team. Saru reports a pattern interrupter around the prison, disrupting both communications and transporters within a half a kilometre radius. Oh, I mean, it it would have been so easy, (laughs) but no. Yeah. Of course there's a disruptor. I mean, why make it easy? Yeah. But I suppose if if they hadn't put uh, some kind of um, electromagnetic shield around the place, then anybody could have come along and beamed them out of there. Even yeah. if, even if uh, they were stuck, if they were stuck behind bars. No, I didn't say it, does, it didn't make sense. Mm. I, I just, just, of course, I mean, it had to have something, you know, it's, it, otherwise it would have been really easy. Yeah. Just beam, yeah. beam them out. <laughs> right. I've written a comment here, but actually it doesn't apply until later on, so I'm going to leave that. I just thought about something. Mm. Uh, But I don't remember what it is, so (laughs) it did come back to me. Okay. Yeah, I know. That made (laughs) perfect sense. I've just thought about something, and I can't remember what it was. Yeah, while you were reading the review, I thought about something, but I didn't want to interrupt you, and then you kept talking uh, I kept doing the review and now I've forgotten what the uh, yeah pen and paper yes I still have dead trees somewhere <laughs> in their quarters Stamets explains to Culber about Tarka being aboard how he was considered a genius but it's notably bitter about Tarka not reaching out to him about the spore drive he notes he's already worked with Tarka's team about propagating the spores and not harming the Jushep, I think that's how you pronounce it, as well as yeah. providing numerous samples of his tardigrade-enhanced DNA. But Tarka is always too busy to speak to Stammers, using Aurelio as a go-between. So this is uh, kind of the, the, the bottom line. Of of why yeah. Stamets is is reacting to Tarka being on board or being invited in, yeah, yeah, and that's that's where you know it's finally not in front of an officer or a, 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 someone from his lab. He's in in front of Kubert, so everything goes goes up now. He's releasing the pressure of the, 
of that visit. Which is exactly what somebody who works on that yeah. ship, particularly a yeah. senior officer as he is, needs to do. Yeah, yeah, true. I can think of somebody but, specific who could do with taking that same advice. <laughs> As Culber prepares to go... That is English. As Culber prepares to go aid with the evacuees, Stamets stops him, noting that he already had five therapy sessions that day, and asks if he could just take a few minutes before jumping into the next one. Culber notes that people needed help, and that knowing that someone had created the DMA made it all the more unsettling. When Stamets prepares to offer some advice, Culbert insists that he's fine and quickly leaves. No, which is exactly yeah, yeah, which is exactly what someone who's not fine would say. Yeah, and the way he said that, it was clear that it was not fine. Yeah, it. It's been. I mean, as we said that many times in the previous episode, it's mm. building up. You know. Of course it is. It's 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 so obvious that he is struggling. I'm just it's gonna it's gonna blow some you know if if he keeps on doing that. Yes, I hope not because I actually really like Culber. I think he's a really nice character, and he you know in the grand scheme of everything around him, he's one of the good guys. Yeah. So yeah, he's got a lot on. Mm-hmm. Moments later, Tarka arrives on the bridge, noting that it was like walking into an antique. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't stop there. Nope. <laughs> Saru introduces him to Stamets, who sarcastically remarks how nice it was to finally meet him. <laughs> Tarka mentions that Aurelio has spoken about him a lot, and that there was so much to admire about Stamets' work, which of course, of course, pleases Stamets, and so much to improve upon, which obviously doesn't. Tarka is eager to get to work, and Saru leads them both to their workplace. Tarka notes Saru is the first Kelpian he has ever met, and notices the strangeness of his feet. I mean, are we... Yeah. This is absolute candor plus, isn't it? Exactly what I thought uh, when I heard that. I thought... Did you spend some time with a quiet millet by any chance? <laughs> like too much time, maybe? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, see. Oh, we've got the. Uh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Go we've got Cubicle Nate in the chat. Hello, Nate. Welcome to the chat. Greetings. Greetings, my friend. That deserves a drop. It does deserve a drop. <laughs> Since we've got drop. Re-enabled for the stream. Sorry, I interrupted you. Um, no, I don't think you did. Okay, good. Because I don't remember what you were saying. <laughs> Nor do I. <laughs> <laughs> On approach to the prison, Burnham and Booker get an update from Reese. He reports that 160 have now been beamed out so far. So that's four transports. He thanks Burnham for letting him lead the evacuation, explaining that his town had been destroyed by a hurricane when he was five years old, and that he had been rescued by a Starfleet crew, so he understood what the Akali were going through. And now remember what I was uh, thinking, uh, what I thought earlier when uh, you were uh, reading the review and then forgot. That's exactly that. I thought when Reese um, 
volunteered uh, for for the mission. I was like, what? What? Why? Suddenly, just like that. It didn't. It was not clear. But fortunately, we now have an explanation. But I still think it was Burnham accepted quickly. You know, out of the blue, he says, "Hey, I want to lead this expedition." Yeah. Okay. Do you have any experience doing that? Do you? Are you sure you want to do that? Uh, why do you want to do that? No. She just said, yeah, okay, go on. I thought it was a little bit too quick. I suppose it's possible that she may have already known this. So when he it volunteered, is. she might have, have put the two situations together and thought this would be a really good opportunity for him. Yeah, probably, yeah. But still... It- I mean, I know we now have the explanation, but yeah, I guess she knows her, uh, uh, the bridge crew pretty well. I hope for her. Also, he but, yeah. is, I'm trying to work out what, um, he's a commander. So that would put him, commander's one rank below captain, isn't it? Uh, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Commander, Commander, Captain. Yes. I think so. So, given that he is a senior member of the team, and I suppose discounting the first officer, one of the most senior people on the bridge, then this is yes. not this is not something that he couldn't have been trusted with. True. This ship is special because the first officer is actually a captain, but not the captain. Not the first time that's happened. Really? Uh, yes. Decker was a captain. Mm. Although, that is true. Although, well, when, <clears throat> when Decker was originally going to captain the Enterprise and then Kirk came along, I seem to recall in the dialogue that Kirk was essentially giving Decker a demotion, but I I don't imagine it would have been an actual rank demotion. It was a operational demotion. Yeah. yeah so yes, he would have been serving as captain. That's the difference between the uh, the rank and the uh, the position. Yes. Yeah, but they're both um, Burnham and um, Saru. Uh, Saru. They're both captain in rank. Correct. But there's only one captain on the ship. Right. Uh, but captain of the ship. Saru's role as first officer is built out of nothing but respect. Mm-hmm. Because he wanted to serve as first officer. Yeah. So he was he was prepared to take that operational demotion. Presumably because yeah. it, Discovery is his home. As mm-hmm. we discovered at the end of Episode two. Indeed. And we have confirmation confirmation in the chat by Nate that uh, Commander is just uh, video captain. Yes. Nice to have a military person to uh, be able to tell us about yeah. those things, yes. Indeed. As Burnham and Booker proceed into the boundary, they spot a large insect pushing up out of the dirt, which Burnham identifies as a Nerissa build- 
beetle, indigenous to the Akali homeworld. But she's concerned. It's moved in the exact same path four times, something no living thing was precise enough to do. Now, I'm going to pause here and put a break in the in the dialogue because if no living thing was precise enough to be able to move in exactly the same path four times, how was Burnham, as a living thing, able to identify that that beetle had moved in exactly the same path four times? Because she wasn't staring at it the whole time. She was having a conversation with Book. She was having a conversation with Reese, And yet she was able to discern that the four times that that beetle had moved in front of her, it was done in exactly the same way all four times. I have no explanation for that. I'm disappointed. <laughs> Probably could invent something, but no, I don't have anything just uh, just yet. The oh, moment, sorry. the moment's passed. Sorry. Yeah. As 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 they both duck behind a boulder, Booker throws a rock at the beetle, which explodes on impact. It's a landmine disguised as a native life form, a weapon rumoured to be used by the chain, and there are a lot more heading their way. Yes. Like, a lot, lot more. Yes. Like a swarm, or whatever a yeah. ground-based swarm would be called. Yeah, something. Mm. Heard? Heard. Stampede. Let's go with that. Stampede. Mm. Yeah, let's go with Stampede. Back aboard Discovery, Stamets reviews the scans from the precise moment the DMA disappeared and notices the presence of a subspace rupture. Tarkett impatiently remarks that he has already seen the data and dubbed it inconclusive, and that subspace damage could be the result of many different things. He continues to talk over Stamets as he observes that, for something so powerful, it was an exceedingly blunt instrument. When Saru begins to explain their own questions about the DMA's purpose, Tarka unexpectedly asks where the replicator was located. And on being pointed to the console, he asks for a plate of mashed potatoes, cold, and a single green pea, and proceeds to use it as a visual aid. The potatoes are the DMA. Yeah, okay. The accreted, materi- <laughs> the accreted material moving through space, and the pea was the device at its centre. He mentions that Stamets' original theory that it might have been a primordial wormhole, which he believes was not completely wrong. He theorises that someone, somehow, tunnelled the DMA through space-time, although he admits he has no idea why. Was that a compliment from Tarka's part? Saying that the theory was not completely wrong. Yeah. Yes. I think it was, but there was no way he was going to say, you're almost right. No, but <laughs> your theory was not completely wrong. Coming from Taka, it's like a huge compliment. That's the pat on the back of all pats on the back. Yeah. 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 But because, w- would knowing, you- I mean, knowing the, the character from, from, from this episode only, uh, it, it doesn't look like it, it's, someone was going to compliment someone else. There's actually a, a, a quote of the week in, in, coming soon <laughs> that proves that. Okay. But what would you rather have? 
Would you rather have someone say, your original theory was brilliant, but it wasn't right? Or would you rather have someone say, that theory, it wasn't completely wrong, which implies that it was kind of right. It, it's like it's like the it's. I, I was always taught in management: if you have to discipline a, a direct report, you do it in the order, kick then kiss. Now, obviously, you don't kiss yeah. because that's a that's an HR issue. But you you yeah. <laughs> you tell tell them what's up. And then tell them what they've done well. You do it in that order. So that kind of falls in line with this. Agreed. In the meantime, Tarka suggests getting their hands dirty by creating a working model of the DMA controller in miniature scale and shows Stamets the schematics of the device. Where did that come from? Well, I don't know. It it didn't really surprise me now, knowing Tarka from from this episode, that when Stamets says it's gonna be a huge thing, done. <laughs> I've done it. Look, it's there. Where's my hand? It's there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it didn't really surprise me. I mean, he's been working on this for uh, for a few time now. So, and yeah, he's brilliant. But it's like turning up and saying, oh, do you know what? I've, I've just had a theory. How about X, Y, Z? Oh, and here it is. That's not a theory. No. That's, that's going prepared. No, I don't. Yeah, exactly. That's going prepared. I think Taka came on, on board being fully prepared. And there's a conversation at the end of this episode that proves that, I think. I know exactly what you're referring to. Yes, I believe so. Saru is concerned about constructing a device that could create a wormhole inside the ship. Well, duh. But Tar- come on, we do we do that every day in Switzerland at CERN. We do the, the, this uh, thing, this uh, particle accelerator or the, something. Yeah, the LHC. Yeah, the LHC. We do that every day. It's no problem. Is, never, is it no, no. three countries the LHC is underneath? Yeah, something like yeah, that. Probably, so yeah, so you, you could create a, a a wormhole that would basically um, absorb the entirety of Switzerland, France, Germany, and probably part of Austria. <laughs> um, just yeah, just in the name of science, paperwork, the paperwork, paperwork. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, dear. Mitaka says that in the episode, uh, progress has never been made. By being cautious or something, something like that. Something, yes, yes, absolutely. It, that's actually something I agree with him on. Target is adamant that they needed answers to the questions they had. How much power did it need? Did it rupture subspace? If they could find those answers, they could find who created the DMA. Stamets agrees yeah, that it. There's co- one question we need to answer too. See. Is um, are the people who created the DMA? Well, do the people who created the, the DMA like mac and cheese? Because we now have this this beef with with every character in this series and and mac and cheese. So. Mac and cheese with beef. Now then, give me a moment. <laughs> I, I think that could work. I, mean. <laughs> I think that could work. It could work. Yeah, mm. I think it could work. It could work. 
Anyway, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Stamets agrees that it could work, and if they contained both ends of the wormhole in a containment field. Saru finally agrees, intending to leave Nilsson the con so that he can supervise. Well, yeah, of course. Taka notes that they're going to need a bigger room. I'm like, that is very close to being one of the, the quotes of the week. Yeah. Do you think it's uh, it's a... Uh, um, how did you say that? Uh, it's related to uh, the... Um, Oh gosh, I forgot where it was now. Was it in in Jaws or in Moby Dick? Uh, no, it was we, Jaws. But Jaws. We're gonna yeah. need a bigger boat or a bigger a, ship. Bigger or it was. Yeah. Uh, Nate says that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Beef with mac and cheese is kind of a deluxe mac and cheese. Yeah, or ground yeah. sausage. I mean, yes, something like that. Yes, yeah. or crisp, crispy to be bacon. Fair, mac and cheese goes with pretty much everything. Just to completely derail everything for the moment, some of my um, my earlier cooking uh, experimentation um, had some really really odd combinations, and I used to to put to make like a a vegetarian bolognese because Caroline was vegetarian back mm-hmm. then. Vegetarian bolognese, spaghetti, corn mince, lots of vegetables, and I would dump a can of Heinz macaroni cheese into the mix. Yeah. And I tell you yeah. what, it was so nice. Uh, I totally understand that. Absolutely. T.L. Grey Hot anyway, Cookery back Corner. To Star- <laughs> back, back to Star Trek. <laughs> oh, dear. Outside the prison, Booker is firing on the beetle mines, some of which have begun producing flying saw blades that can cut through rock, while Burnham attempts... Fly. They can fly and cut through rocks. Yeah. Because you know, the, the, the beetles don't throw the thing. The thing goes up, flies for a moment on top of the beetle, and then it goes straight to... Right. It, it would have to be directed because if it, was, if, it was, if it had been thrown, then the moment that it hit the rock, it would fly in the opposite direction to which the blade yeah, is turning. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which actually could have been... Quite catastrophic for Book or Burnham. Yeah. <laughs> Which brings us to another more existential question. If those things can fly, why don't they just go above the rock and strike to Book and, uh, and uh, Oh, airstrikes. Burnham? What? Airstrikes. So rather than, yeah, rather strikes, than yeah. Yeah, yeah. going up to things and blowing them up, they fly above them and drop themselves right. Yeah. yeah. Because they went, they, they tried to go through the 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 rock, but I mean those things fly, so I don't know. Well, they got wings. Yeah, but great I question. Mean, I I understand that killing the two main characters on episode five for season four was not probably not a good idea. Yeah, so. uh, wouldn't have been the first time. <laughs> well, they could have sent a big body anyways after that. So. Wouldn't be the first time either. (laughs) And Burnham attempts to disable the shared control matrix that powers them. She is successful and they proceed towards the prison. Indeed. I mean, how she was able to hack into the shared control matrix, whatever that is. 
But I suppose it's, it's, a, it's the same technical it's a control metrics that is shared. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I don't, I don't know where, where 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 did she get that from. I have no idea. But I would imagine it uses the same kind of security that allows people to beam themselves onto a the bridge of a starship yeah. from from somewhere else. Do you know what? What I, I don't know why, but do you know what it reminded me of when I saw that scene? It reminded me the scene in Jurassic Park where the the girl I don't remember her name gets into the control room and sees a computer and says, "Oh, I oh, can it's, hack it's this a Unix thing. system. It's a, it's a Unix yes. system. I can hack that." Yeah, right. How, I don't know why that came to my mind when I, I I watched this scene. I have a feeling we may have have kind of sent up that particular scene before, because um, I do remember saying, "How can she tell it was a Unix system when it had a graphical interface in front of it?" Yeah, and it seemed to be bespoke. Yeah, yeah. RM dash RF slash. Right, on to Act 2. As they enter the prison, Burnham tells the prisoners to prepare to be evacuated as a gravitational anomaly is headed towards them. One of the Akali prisoners, Luda, bitterly realises that this is why the guards left, leaving them to die. Yep, they're not your friends. Yeah. So, let's talk about this prison for a moment. Those people were in a was that a cube or some 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 kind of geometric shape, yeah, with no apparent bed, no apparent way to move or or use the facilities or use the facilities or anything uh, it, I mean. <laughs> Uh, it's it's weird. It's it. I, I don't know. It it didn't register to me as, as a, a real prison or something. Uh, it, it looked fake. I know it's fake. It's a it's a TV show, but it's Shh. too fake. Illusion, man. But I, I, mean, I, I, I can't even imagine. I mean, one of the characters, Felix, was quite tall. There's no way he could have laid down flat inside that no. that little cube. No. So I wonder if that's where they keep them during the day. Because there's a lot of... It's actually a big area. Yeah. So could that have... The cube was just to hold them most of the time, and then they can move around and, you know, exercise, Maybe. play pool, whatever. Watch TV. Watch, yeah, exactly. Uh, sleep. Use the use the toilet, whatever. Yeah, I have no idea. Change. Yes, I mean if they've been there for years, if they've been Oof. in this thing with the same clothes for, then you'd want them to be sealed up and and <laughs> go back in there now. Go back in there. <laughs> yes. A human prisoner named Felix asks why a Starfleet captain would bother to rescue them. To which Burnham answers that the Federation did not leave prisoners to die. Uh, the Wrath of Khan, just saying. Yeah. Felix notes that they were all sentenced to life, no matter how small their crime. One was there for stealing food for their family, another one for trading in at counterfeit latinum, and Luda for counting cards at a Tongo club. 
Luda adds that Felix was there for one joyride in a sandcopter and asks how that warrants being held for 30 years and counting. This was not a place of justice, and up to now the Federation had done nothing. Bernard reminds him that this was Emerald Chain uh, territory, but that didn't mean that they didn't care. Yeah. I, I, you know, agree. Doesn't mean they didn't care. Doesn't mean they did anything. Well, the Emerald Chain fell at the end of previous season, so, Mm. yeah, it takes, bureaucracy takes time. So, yeah, okay. Mm. I accept this uh, explanation. Yeah, they're a very difficult place to, to, to be. Yeah. Especially since I, I guess the colony, you know, didn't send a message to the Federation saying, hey, we've got prisoners here. Uh, you know, just in case you want to, you know, get involved. Mm. Burnham goes on to explain that transporters and communications will be lost within the next hour and that they will be evacuated to the ship until it was safe. Felix tells them that the prison controls were on the basement level but were biometrically locked to the guards. Luda suggests overloading the force field generator. Oh, but of course, that works every time. (laughs) Booker scans the generator, whose casing was of a quinarium alloy. Yeah, one of the... One of the strongest metals known, but Burnham also knows nope. hmm? the strongest. Uh, the strongest alloy known is uh, adamantium. Adamantium, that does not sound real. X Men, the movie. Oh, uh, okay. Wolverine. Yes. No. 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 Captain's America's shield. No. No. Also, adamant. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't know. <laughs> Not a clue. I might have seen it, yeah. but I just don't remember. Please hand over your geek card. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I am looking for a new co-host for this show, someone who actually is a geek. Right, let's, let's just visit that for a second, shall we? Okay. So the requirements for the role, you must have read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You must not have watched any of Star Wars, any of the Matrix films apart from the first one, none of Lower Decks, um, none of the Star Trek Kelvin Timeline reboot films. Um, well, I think you probably can, covered it. You, you can have you can have watched the, the Kelvin Timeline as long as you don't like it. You're in for the job. Oh, so, sorry. Yes, yeah. That, that's probably a clearer clearer definition. Same with, with Lower, Lower Decks. You, you can have watched Lower Decks to be a co-host. Just don't like it. Well, I have to resign then. Because <laughs> Lower Decks well, is amazing. Okay. Let's, let's agree to disagree. <laughs> well, let's ask the listeners. Listeners, if you have watched Lower Decks, any of it, yeah. please let us know what you think of it because this is a very divisive um, subject matter. Yeah, we will tell you at the end of the, the episode how to contact us. Yes, indeed. All right, moving on. Uh, where was I up to? Um, no, I think that was it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So the, the 
I was surprised because it was so easy to disrupt the shared control matrix. I mean, surely a biometric protection is you know, peanuts. But no. Well, if Burnham can hack into the, sh- yeah, like you say, the shared control matrix, then yes. She probably can hack the biometric thingies. You just bypass it. Yeah. Reboot the system. Mm. Have like forty-seven seconds before it, after it starts, before the um, security uh, yeah. controls come into force. But we wouldn't have had an episode anyway, uh, otherwise. So, yeah, but it was a good idea. Yes. Right. We're now back on Discovery and. Typically, what we're doing with these reviews is we're cutting them down to take out a lot of the unnecessary uh, content. But for this particular scene, I'm going to read the whole thing because I think it is very, very relevant. Good. Dr. Colbert enters his office to find Dr. Kovic waiting on Hollow. Colbert explains that he had to cancel their appointment, but Kovic reminds him that there were others helping the refugees and that he, Colbert, had requested the meeting. Colbert tries to explain that this was before he knew about the evacuation, but Kovic gets to the point. He was a busy man and had cleared the time specifically for Colbert, so they could both forego the therapeutic niceties. Colbert begins by mentioning his duties as ship's counsellor and how Kovic had worked with Giorgio, which Kovic takes as a request for brutal honesty. Colbert explains how the DMA has affected the crew and how he's offered hope to the crew and it would not last forever, and that they would find a way to stop the DMA. He then mentions his recent session with Booker, where he almost admitted to Booker that he too was struggling, and that he realised he'd been lying to the crew. It was a realisation made worse by the revelation that the DMA was created by someone with incredible power, whether he lied about it or not. No, whether he lied or not, Culber admits that he was failing. Kovic asks him if he wanted him to affirm that Kalba was failing, just so that he could take a break. Kalba heatedly insists that was not what he said, but Kovic retorts that that is exactly what he said. As Kalba angrily prepares to leave, Kovic reminds him that he had died and been brought back to life. Little wonder you're a mess, he notes, mentioning that Kalba's Starfleet file was stunningly generic about his feelings on that unique situation. So... He offers to fill in the blanks. He sees that Culber asks himself the same question every morning and every evening. Why me? No one else got a second chance, so why me? This then led Culber to believing that there was a purpose to his survival, which led to a saviour complex. Because if there was no purpose behind Culber's existence, the fact that he was alive would be a middle finger to anyone who had ever lost someone, which he was in fact everyone. Culber sarcastically asks if he had a recommendation to go with that sparkling analysis. Kovic's recommendation is simple. Whether or not he was considered a miracle, Culber was still only human, which means that he needs to rest too, just as he has advised his patients. If he couldn't find fulfilment outside of work, then he would be failing anyone who sat in the chair in front of him. Kovic notes that he had a two o'clock appointment and curtly bids Kolber goodbye before closing the channel and leaving the Doctor in thought. 
Whoa, that was yep. probably the hardest scene of this episode to watch because you could see. I mean, I don't agree with Kovic's method. Actually, now I think back on it, I think it was brilliant. But the message that Kovic was trying to put across, regardless of how it was delivered, was absolutely spot on. And it's in any situation like this, when you're trying to get a message across, it doesn't matter whether what you're saying is kind, rude, arrogant, polite. You're doing it in a way that the person you're speaking to needs to hear it. And this obviously worked because it's made Kolber stop and think about and question almost what his role is on this ship, the reason for his existence. Because if you, if you turn it around, if he's asking, why have I had this second chance? That second chance has put him on that ship to help other people. I'm going to shut up in every bit. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought I thought the the way um Kovic delivered the message was like he 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 had to slap Kobat in in the face <laughs> because he it was not going to listen to oh you should stop you should you should rest it was not going to listen to that. So bluntly said what what he said like it's again, it's absolute candor. Again, it's it's uh, here's here's how the things are. That's the uh, how did he say that? Um, uh, blunt, blunt uh, honesty. Blunt, uh, yes, this brutal blunt honesty. Yeah, brutal honesty. You're a mess. Stop. Rest, or you're you're, you're gonna you know you know you're gonna drone in in your in your uh, work, and you you're gonna be useless after that so uh, i think kilbert needed that he, need, he needed something like that it did it didn't need someone to carefully try and 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 tell him he had to stop um so i thought the way uh, kovic said that was brilliant and the message was also brilliant mm. it, he 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 only stated truth maybe you know I know it's only uh, a, a, a fiction, it's only a TV show, so it's been written like that. But it's exactly, you know, the kind of thing Colbert would, if 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 it was in real life, that 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 person Colbert would have tried to ignore that um, and and to be presented with the fact that yeah, you died, yeah, you you're here, but you don't necessarily have a purpose, or maybe you you do, but you know. Y- you don't ha- you have to rest you, you you are you are not a superhero you have to be like everyone else right but th- the way he's done it is effectively through shock therapy yeah yeah so slap in the face yeah absolutely really yeah brilliant i i love so, that I, I i actually struggled reading it i'll be honest because yeah. it was very powerful, very emotive. Um, it was it was a great piece of writing from from the writers of this series to actually you know nail it exactly how how it it should be and 
how I think it would be done in, in real life if, if Kovic was a, a real character and a real doctor. Right. But the way that the way that Kovic delivered, I mean, David Cronenberg, um, it's, this is the first thing I've ever seen him as, as an actor. Because obviously he's, he's, he's a director. That's his, his kind of principle. But because of, he's very soft-spoken, is, is David Cronenberg. And because of that, the fact that it, it was clear he was angry. He was angry at Culber. But he did it with his soft-spoken, um, fairly monotonous voice. And I think that gave it more impact. Yeah. I agree. Now, I, I have a, a question for you. Mm. We said in, in the previous episode, and maybe the, the one before that, that we started to really like Kovic, yes. which was not the case when we first met him. And I wonder if we didn't have that episode last week or, or, or the one previous to that, uh, prior to that, would we have seen that as a good thing for Colbert? Or would we have seen that as a, a arrogance or maybe just, you know, something, uh, a character we don't like uh, would have said? I think the fact that we were presented a nice Kovic in the previous episodes gave this scene more impact and more importance? That is such a good question. I, I, think, I think the fact that... So, where I'm saying I, you know, Kovic is growing on me, when we spoke about it over the last couple of weeks, mm -hmm. I think that was more from the point of view that I hadn't yet come up with an opinion for him not because I disliked him. Mm -hmm. Vance, Vance was different. In the early days, I disliked Vance because I thought he was arrogant and, and you know, very much up himself and, and not willing to accept who Discovery was, what they were doing, and the, and the, the value that they had within, within Starfleet. Kovic was different. I didn't understand him. To be honest, I still don't. But I have a much better... Um, a much better, much much better inkling of the kind of person he is. So, had we not had the last couple of weeks to form a better opinion of him, it's very difficult to say whether I would still have that changed opinion now. But I think my reaction to this particular scene would have been exactly the same. Because this wasn't about Kobe, this was about Culber. True. And what Culber needed. Mm -hmm. And whether you'd like Kovic, dislike Kovic, or ambivalent about Kovic, that interaction hit the mark. Yeah. Agreed. If you look back, particularly specifically at the, the episodes we've reviewed, this is our 97th um, episode review you know numbers notwithstanding this is our 97th episode review we've reviewed uh five maybe six seasons of star trek over that time uh -huh. and we've always called out one of the biggest strengths of star trek is its ability to convey morals 
Mm-hmm. Okay. The message that always sits behind, not necessarily every episode, but some of them. If the intention was to address mental health burnout, I don't know that it was, but come on, look at the last few episodes. It absolutely yeah. was. Yeah. Then it just demonstrates yet another reason why I love Star Trek so much, because it's not empty. It's not shallow. It has a purpose. No, it has a reason for being. It was spot on. And it was spot on. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Opinions welcome, of course, always. Of course. Right, moving on. Back in the prison, Burnham and Booker bring down the generator. Luda bluntly tells the others that there was no way that she was going to sit in the brig and elects to leave on her own. Burnham raises her phaser to stop her. Booker reminds them that their ship was the only way to get them off the colony, but Felix does not see how they can expect trust when they treat him and his fellow prisoners no differently than their jailers, and tells Burnham to lower her weapon, which... After a moment, she does. And I agree with him. I mean, they're here, they, they come here to save them, and then they you know, point a gun at them and say, now you're coming with us. Uh, yeah, not not smartest move, I think. No, not at all. Please bear with me. Live technical issues. Live technical. Yeah, the show notes timed out. I've got to find out how to turn that off. Ah. It's so annoying. And I've reloaded it. If, if anyone knows how to stop Nextcloud from disconnecting us after 30 minutes yes. or so, or, or so. Um, yeah, it's annoying. It's got to be a switch somewhere. Somewhere. Felix then asks if they would get their freedom if they were rescued, believing that if they went off on their own, they could be free. And if the anomaly missed the colony, they'd find their own way out. Booker tells him about the DMA's power, about how it destroyed his homeworld, and how whoever was behind it didn't care how many it killed. While sympathetic to Booker's loss, it changes nothing so far as Felix is concerned. He demands a guarantee, or they go nowhere. Now, the Prime Directive... Mm-hmm. The Prime Directive, because I looked it up, I read it, and it basically it is talking about the non-interference of civilizations and cultures. If in the Akali chain culture, the examples is part of their tradition, part well, it's part it's an emerald chain tradition. We knew this. But if it's part of their of their civilization, then effectively by lowering her weapon and allowing them a temporary freedom, I know there's a bit coming on that's about to negate what I'm saying here. It is interfering with their culture. That she's almost subverting their in quotes justice system. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Now I was I was thinking what you were you were uh, talking but mm. yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Uh, 
they sh yeah they should have taken them on the ship and put them in the brig and you know give them back to the to the colony afterwards uh, after mm. afterwards but uh, yeah um the prime directive has always been you know a very uh blurry thing for every star trek captain we know of so but it is down to captain's discretion and, and the captain's interpretation of what that non-interference actually means. So, yes. although it does say in the Prime Directive it shouldn't take into account the feelings or the opinions of the captain, if there is a very obvious uh, miscarriage of justice, the fact that these people are actually being held to make an example of, you know, the clues in the title, yeah. then something's wrong and they should act and, you know, they should act appropriately. Well, it's, it's always the same, the same thing. Is it, it's, it's wrong for Starfleet, for the Federation, but it might not be wrong for that society, that particular society. Right. Right. It's like, you know, you remember this episode where Wesley Crusher was condemned, you know, he was going to be uh, That's I had that in my mind. On, yeah, he walked on the grass. Mm -hmm. uh, it, yeah, of course it seemed wrong to Beverly Crusher's son was going to be executed. But it's, it's that society's law. It's that society's ways. Right. And they, they you know, they ended up um, kidnapping Wesley, uh, essentially. Um, so, yeah, yeah, the it it's a tough, it's a tough uh, decision. It's a tough uh, situation. Yeah, of course it is, as it always is with the Prime Directive, anyway. Yeah. It it's very complex, very difficult to. Uh, to, to, to grok to get your head around. Prime Directive is a guide, not a hard set of rules, says Nate. At least that's the way he sees yeah. it. And yeah, I, I do agree. I do agree. But when you're in front of a tribunal um, at Starfleet headquarters or Federation headquarters, because they believe you have violated the Prime Directive, you've then got to fight your case as to why, how you believe you haven't. Yeah. Ask me the question again. Well, Fortunately, most of the time that happens, like light us away from the Federation. And we always said that, you know, what the Federation doesn't know <laughs> can't hurt you. So, Romulan Nail. It's, yeah, it's between the captain and the first officer, probably. What happens on the ship stays on the ship. Exactly. In the Spore Drive Lab, Tarka has created the model controller and activated the containment field. Reno, yay Reno, expresses the wish yay. that she could see Tilly's face when she finds out Discovery got <laughs> sucked into a wormhole three days after she left. Saru adds, yeah, he misses Tilly as well. <laughs> Lovely to see Reno back in the um, in engineering. I yeah. don't think we've seen her yet this series, so it's, it's, no, I it's don't great to see her. And she's still the same, you know, caustic, uh, humoristic character. I believe 
Tarka called her the Grumpy Lady. Grumpy Lady, yes. yes. Which is a fair description. I think it's a spot-on description. I think she should change her name from Jet Reno to Grumpy Lady. <laughs> and, and, I think she'd agree. Yes. Stamets tells Reno that they are ready for the power transfer. Tarka notes that in addition to the smaller size, the major difference between the model and the real DMA controller was that the real thing had its own internal power source using technology far beyond their capabilities. But he has the rest of it down completely. As Reno adds the power, the model looks almost exactly like the DMA. At this point, it looks like the experiment has stalled due to insufficient power, but Reno has already diverted everything without pulling power from the transporters, something Saru is adamant will not be allowed. Stamets pleads with Reno to find some other way. She thinks that she could pull ionic radiation from the main phaser array to act as a temporary power source. Technobabble. Noting that on a scale (laughs) of 1, meaning nothing to worry about, to 10, insane, she'd give it a 6. I was expecting a 12. Yeah, yeah, I was. I I, I didn't work thought she was going to go higher than a six. 47. Tarka insists, this is what you said earlier, that great science was never accomplished with caution. Saru believes neither of them are concerned enough about the risks. Suddenly, Tarka begins yelling in Saru's face, trying to get a response and challenging him to yell back. Saru does so, causing Tarka to rear back slightly, but he chuckles. Well, it it was a scary scream. It wasn't a scream, it was a roar. Roar, roar yeah. <laughs> it was a scary roar. I was expecting spit and bits of food to yeah. come out as he was doing. <laughs> <laughs> Taka asks Saru if it felt good to be out of control for a moment, and Saru concedes that it does. It did. And while Taka was aware that Saru did not particularly like him, he admitted that he loved himself too much to allow himself to be blown up and, by extension, the ship would be fine as well. Yeah, that's my quote of the week. Yeah. You may not like me, but I like me I like me very yes. much. <laughs> yes. Yes, yeah. very good. Yeah. At, at this point, I kind of started to like Tarka. Oh, careful now. Yeah, I know. Mm. I mean, he's a likable enough character. And actually, I, I, I kind of recall there's a um, a whole big scene in about three episodes' time where I actually really disliked him. But I think he is a character. He has character. And he's one of those those individuals where you're going to be like, I really like him, but I really don't like him. Yeah, it's one of, the, one of those that... Um you like to hate. Yes. Stamets also points out that they were making headway into discovering what lay behind the DMA for the first time since they encountered it. Reluctantly, Saru gives in and allows for the additional power, but only if Reno provides a cutoff switch for when he deems necessary. Think that's reasonable? Yeah, I guess, you know, as the uh, acting captain of the ship, someone is trying to uh, d- design an experiment that can probably um, 
blow the ship up and, and create a mini black hole. Yeah, I guess supervision is in order, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, kids, you can play with the wormhole, but I'm going to I'm going to watch you. Yeah. Essentially. <laughs> In the prison, with 30 minutes left before they were blocked out, Burnham comes across something in the General Orders and Regulations which allows a Starfleet captain to provide asylum in extreme circumstances. This would bring the prisoners under Federation law, which would allow their cases to be reviewed and their sentences would likely be commuted, given that the sentencing was clearly political theatre rather than true justice. And if they wanted their cases reviewed, she wanted them to say so. One by one, they did. Well, actually, one didn't. As they get moving, Felix tells Burnham that unlike the others, he does belong there because he had taken a life. And something else. Under the floor of his cell, he pulls out a small object, a, log- a la- Lologi orb, a record of an Akali family's heritage. Felix had kept it hidden from the guards for 30 years, promising himself that he would return it to the family he had taken it from. He devoted his life to doing penance for his crime and considered helping the others to escape as part of that. So he did, in fact, spend 30 years in this uh, cube. Mm. So, weird, but... Um, just just to come back on, on the fact that they had to state that they wanted their case reviewed, What? Why? I mean, they're in the middle of nowhere. There's no one there. Uh, okay, there's just uh, we're going. That's what we're gonna do. Let's go, move. But no, no, they had. To, it's like there's a procedure or something. Uh, I've spotted a flaw in the procedure because something like that would at least, at the very least, require a witness. And yeah, although there was book. book was there, I don't know whether he would clarify classify as a witness, because he wasn't Starfleet no, or Federation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I, I know why they had to, because it has to be a consciously made decision. Yes, I want you to um, to review my case, because yeah. obviously there are consequences of going down that path. Mm-hmm. Because the case could get reviewed and they could be sent back to prison for 30 years. We don't know. It's unlikely, but there is that risk. Yeah. As they collectively walk towards the door, an alarm sounds and a door suddenly slams shut, a force field then coming up to block it. Luda realises that her biometric signature has triggered the prison's automated systems. The prisoners and their rescuers are trapped. Muppet. <laughs> oh, dear. How, how did she realise that her biometric signature triggered the automated system? She was first in line. But if she knew that her biometric signature was capable of tripping the systems, then why didn't she say something? That, and also... Didn't they blow up the generator just five minutes ago? That was the force... Oh, yeah, good point. Because there was a force field there as well. 
Yeah. But probably it's on an auxiliary <laughs> power generator. An auxiliary the power one, you know, generator that could have actually then kicked in and put the force field back up yeah. around the pods. Yeah, I need to watch the episode, but maybe that was 47 seconds between the <laughs> the two events. Huh. Yes. Who knows? No, but it's... Yeah, okay. I, I mean, it's a prison, right? So there's going to be some defenses in place to prevent the prisoners from doing exactly that. So, Well, if you made it so no, that I, they weren't capable of escaping from their pods in the first place, you wouldn't need those additional defenses. Yeah, but you never know. You know, some clever prisoner could find a way to escape their pods. So you need a, a backup, you know. It's like, it's like um, with a, a computer, right? You don't need your backup until you need your backup, right? So See, when you put it that way, it makes perfect sense. You don't need, you don't need to, a backup because everything works fine until one day something goes wrong. Uh, whatever, you get uh, hacked or your computer dies or something, and then you suddenly realize, well, I didn't need that backup, but actually I did. So it, it, it makes sense that there is a, another layer of protection. Okay, so Moore's Law states that every two years, the computing power available on a chip is doubled. Now, we're 930 years in the future, so that means <laughs> there are 465 doublings of power. You'd think they would have got it right by now. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Nate just said, the backup is needed when it's not available. Absolutely. Yes. That's exactly that's exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're now on to act 3. This is quite a short one. The scans show that the door is covered by a layer of nanomaterial that cannot be shot through. Booker suggests reactivating the beetle mines to blow open the door. Burnham tells the others to take cover as she's bringing the beetles right to them. Outside, the beetles swarm the door and blow it open. Burnham is able to then deactivate the system again, just before they begin launching their saw blades, and the group makes its way outside. Well, actually, that's not quite true, because I think one of them did launch a saw blade just at the point that she disabled it, and then it just dropped to the floor. Yeah. So it was going very fast. It was flying very fast, and then it stopped and dropped, which yes. is weird. Which actually does cover your theory that they were flying, yeah. not propelled. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So... Why didn't the blades go over the rock in the first place? We do, we will never know. But yeah, good call. They weren't programmed to. Reactivating the Beatles mm. uh, for a, a, one last live show on this. Uh, oh no, it's not the same Beatles. <laughs> Spelled differently as well. Yes. Back on Discovery, Reese reports that the evac evacuation is nearly complete, but Burnham and Booker's comms were still dark. Saru orders him to complete his mission and then proceed to the prison to assist them. He then turns to... Yeah, because, you know, you've lost contact with two people, so send someone else because, you know, that's what, that's what you do. You've lost contact with a group, you send another group, and then you lost contact with the second group. 
and then you look for uh, volunteers to go save the first two groups. <laughs> yeah, so you have two conflicting concepts here. You have the idea of throwing good people in a completely unknown direction versus Federation doesn't leave people behind. True. It's a balance. Send a red shirt. Yes, and of course, Reese is not a red shirt. Well, nope. They all wear kind of a blue color, don't they? Yeah. He then turns to... Sorry, who's this? This is Saru. Saru then turns to Stamets and Tarka, telling them to finish the experiment as he was needed on the bridge. Reno has diverted the power, but warns them that the more power the model DMA gets, the more power will be needed for the containment field. And he ha and she has also provided Saru with a kill switch. Tarka allows Stamets to begin the experiment. That was a big thing. Yeah. Tarka saying, do you want to start it off? Yeah. I think I think um Stamets had a little squee moment. <laughs> <laughs> As he increases power to the to the device, the containment field weakens and Saru orders Reno to divert power to the field, which of course stores the reaction. Stamets insists he can control it, and Saru reluctantly allows the experiment to continue, whilst asking Zora for real time feedback of the containment field's integrity. About time. About time. About time, yes. As the model DMA begins to react, both scientists excitedly observe that Tarka's theory was right. The model, working exactly like the real DMA, was accreting dark matter and also creating a subspace rupture. Zora warns of the containment field's failure, counting down every 5% in the power drop. As it reaches 5% before failure, Saru pulls the kill switch, much to Tarka's consternation, Curtly tells them the experiment is over before leaving for the bridge. Yeah, and we're back to the question: What does five percent of a containment <laughs> field means? Yes, is this like five percent of the remaining energy, and then it's going to blow up? So I don't know. It seems like everything in Star Trek is like working perfectly until it stops working, like shields on on a spaceship. They they. They're still working, even though they are 10%. They're still working. And then suddenly they would stop working. So, Well, yes. You'd expect Maybe. it to be their efficiency. Yeah. And you'd expect 10% so like, efficiency means that 90% of whatever's being thrown at it is going to get through. Yeah, exactly. But it doesn't seem to be the, it doesn't seem to be the case. No, I did not see 95% of a black hole <laughs> in, in the engineering. No, that's true. Mm. And uh, yes, this is the, my uh, quote of the week was was in this particular scene. In fact, it was right at the very end of this scene when Reno said, that's the closest you've come to killing us all. And that's really saying something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A, a good Reno quote. Mm. She doesn't say much, but everything she says is just on yes, point. But, um... Burnham and Booker lead the prisoners outside the pattern interrupter, which allows Burnham to contact Discovery. Reese reports that they've been trying to reach her and that the evacuation was now complete. Burnham orders five to be transported, with more coming. As the others are beamed away, Felix tells them he wanted to be sure the others got out, but he was choosing 
to stay. Couple of things there. Uh-huh. If they were asking for five to be transported, only four got transported. So why didn't they say something before the transports took place? Because obviously no. they wouldn't have locked on five. Reese was transported with them. So why in that case did they not say six to be transported? If Felix why? was gonna go. Yeah, but why six and not eight then? Why why not everybody at the same time? I mean maybe it is plausible that they had something to do before being transported. Mm. Because if you if you go to the the, 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 the way transport all the prisoners, then why not transport Book, Reese and Burnham at the same time? True, true. Apart from the fact that Felix was actually still inside the interrupter. Yes. And I'm really surprised that no one picked up on that before the transport was ordered. And unless, unless and it is, it is entirely possible that Burnham may actually have realised that he was going to do this. Maybe. Because I, I kind of predicted Maybe. it. Nate says, she only said five because math is hard. <laughs> or math, math. Maths. Maths. Yes, there's the, an S on the end, yeah. Depending on which country you're in. It, it's really weird. Where you're from. You know, they, they don't put an S on the end of maths, but they do put an, an S on the end of Lego. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, no, it didn't surprise me. Uh, no, you know, no, not at all. Because, um, yeah. and what was the second thing you were going to talk about? Um, I have completely forgotten. Ah, good. That, that <laughs> so that's uh, yeah, you, you, it's gonna come back to you later, I'm sure. No, probably not. Well, let's let, let's take the opportunity and move on to Act Four before I remember. Yeah, let's do that. Burnham reminds Felix that there are only six minutes left before the interference blocked their transporters. Felix tells her he'd resolved to die there years ago as part of his penance and will remain until either his jailer's return or the anomaly hits. Booker is convinced he's not thinking clearly. Felix concedes that they could force him to leave with them, but asks if that was truly their choice to make. He committed his crime while on the colony, and so chooses to stay. Against Booker's attempts to convince Burnham otherwise, Burnham chooses to respect Felix's wishes. Wishes? Wishes. Wishes. Many wishes. (laughs) Giving him her communicator so that she can tell him when where the anomaly was heading. In return, Felix gives her the Lalogi orb. See, I can say Lalogi, but I can't say wishes. Asking her to keep it safe and expressing his gratitude for her. Booker is convinced that this is wrong, but Burnham orders only two to be transported. As they materialise on the bridge, Booker exchanges a look with her, then quietly leaves for the turbo lift. Ouch. So, yeah, ouch. So she le- she leaves a communicator, but Felix is still inside the containment field, which we've been told, you know, you you could you can't transport him or 
or communicate with people inside this field. So suddenly, suddenly it's working. No, it isn't. It isn't. He's still inside the containment field because there is still the possibility that Burnham could beam him up as part of the final transport. But all he has to do, once he, once they've gone, oh, actually, yeah. they could pull him up afterwards, couldn't they? But once they've gone, yeah. he he just step out and, and use the communicator in the same way. And they could transport him at this moment, because if they can they could. communicate, they can transport Yeah, I realised that when I said it. Yeah. Uh, uh. But, um, now, if, if I remember rightly, it was Burnham that gave the order for two to be beamed back. Yeah. How did she give that order? She, she stealthily stepped out of the uh, force field. And we did not realize. Oh no, they were on the on the correct side of the of the force field. Ah, okay. But Felix, yeah, well, had, Felix usual. had her communicator. Yeah, but you know, as usual, uh, it, it's something. It, it's a it's a recurring thing in Star Trek. Do they have to tap the combadge or not? Do they need the combadge or not? Can they just you know, look <laughs> up and speak to? to the, the corner of the room. Beam me up! Yeah. Well, I suppose Who knows? she could have used books, but then that, this goes back to something that we I asked when they were when we were um, reviewing Picard, is how does a device know when a particular phrase or saying is aimed at it? Yeah. Yeah. Good example is when Taka ordered the mush, mashed potatoes. He started, paused, kept going, but at no point did he said, you know, do that or, or you know, commit or yes, you know, execute or something. But the computer knew it had to wait and then knew the, the order was complete, right? So mm. I think I am taking that as, um, and I, I've said that uh, already in on this podcast um, many times, I think. Um, it's the same thing um, as in Stargate. When they started Stargate, every single episode they were spending time trying to learn the language. You know, Daniel Jackson was there studying the language. And then the producers decided that it's, okay, we know that's what they do, but it's using screen time for things that we know are happening. So we don't, I don't, I don't, care that they don't tap their com badge or not or that she didn't have her com badge on uh, on in this particular uh, situation because i can interpolate you know in if i if i can use this word uh those missing moments i know she's going to have some ways to initiate the communication with the ship but i don't want to see that every single episode so i i'm i'm good with that yeah that's reasonable because there are some other things we've picked up on i think on discovery specifically where we've accepted that something now doesn't get done but like you say it doesn't need to be no burnham congratulates the crew on the work they've done 
as they'd saved over a thousand lives. Nielsen reports the colony will be in the DMA will be in the DMA's impact zone. Burnham orders the ship to remain in comms range and then opens a channel to Felix, who now knows that the anomaly is going to impact. He offers to tell her about his crime, something that he'd never told anyone before, and yet also did not want to carry the burden beyond this life. Felix explains that 30 years before, he had nothing until a stranger offered him food and shelter. When the man went to sleep, Felix proceeded to rob him, waking up his host. There was a struggle, and the man died, with his daughter asleep in the next room. Felix did not realise until later that among the things he'd taken was the family's Lalogi orb. Not only did he take the girl's future, he'd taken her past as well. He's thought about the girl every day, how the event must have changed her. When Barnum... Barnum? Circus. <laughs> Barnum. When, when <laughs> Burnham... Oh, I'm having a circus on Discovery. That'd be so cool. When Burnham asks if he knew her name, Felix replies that the family was called Doxica. Then the comms go static as the leading edge of the DMA pushes the colony asteroids into the sun. Watching for a moment, Burnham then quietly orders Black Alert and to jump away before the wave hit the sun. Yeah, and hit Discovery too. Well, precisely. So, literally following on from what you have just said, I had in my notes, back from when we originally reviewed this months ago, that there was Uh this whole thing about Burnham ordering Black Alert and then ordering Jump very quickly afterwards with no indication that Stamets or book, but he wouldn't have been him in this case, was actually ready for the jump to occur. Yeah. But, yeah, that's one of those things. It is. We, we don't I'm not happy to... with it, and, uh, but I get no, it. No. I get it. Yeah. As the ship retreats to safety, the Akali magistrate storms onto the bridge, demanding that the prisoners brought up from the colony be put into the brig. Burnham bluntly rebuffs him, reminding him that he no longer had any authority to make such demands, as his colony no longer existed. The prisoners were now under Federation protection, and thus subject to Federation law, as was the magistrate himself. She points out that wherever he and his people were resettled, they would be refugees seeking shelter and care, and adds the hope that whatever society took them in proved to be more than just the one that the magistrate had a hand in creating before subtly telling him to leave the bridge as she had a ship to command. Yeah, that was a, a bit brutal. Um, but highly necessary. He needed, he needed taking down a peg or two. Yeah. Yes, but you know, reminding him that, you know, well, you've lost everything, duh. And I said, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, I know, I understand that he needed that, but... I think she could have been a little bit more, uh, more um, diplomatic, maybe. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I, I understand. I fundamentally disagree. Yeah. Uh, Burnham is obviously still going to be damaged by what she's just been a part of. Yeah. Um, but actually, he was being such an idiot making demands like, like like she said uh, uh, making demands using an authority that he actually no longer had 
he was now a, a refugee, a migrant. Yeah. So w- what on earth is, is he doing making demands when he doesn't even have a place to live? But he still have his people. I mean, but they're not his people the, anymore. Why? They're still the same community. They're just living on a spaceship, right? For a so moment. The, the the best that he will ever be, wherever it is they end up going, will be a a village elder. <laughs> yeah, still, it still makes him the authoritative figure for that community. An authoritative figure, maybe. But not an authority figure. He's, no. he's not. So he doesn't have True. any authority to go up to Burnham and demand that those re- those uh, prisoners True. are put into the brig. He can request it, yeah, but he can't demand it. True. True. So she es- essentially said, "You know, go back to your room, <laughs> back in your box." Yeah, back in your box. Mm. Yeah. As the ship retreats to safety, I'm going to say that again. That made no yeah. sense. Yeah. <laughs> As the ship retreats to safety, the Akali magistrates. Now I've just done that bit. Hang on. Yeah. yeah. Scroll down. <laughs> scroll down some more. In their, this is live, folks. In their quarters, Stamets mm. and Culber review their days. For Culber, the refugees are settled down, and their resettlement will begin the following day. For Stamets, he believes they learnt a lot about the DMA, although not as much as they could have and concedes that Tarka is actually a genius, but also frightens him somewhat due to his single-mindedness, a trait that does sound familiar to him. <laughs> when, yeah. When asked how he was feeling, Culber said he was fine, but Stamets notes that that was an avoiding fine, as opposed to a yeah. real fine, because he looked down when he said it. Culber tells him about his meeting with Kovic, about how he believed Culber was wearing himself out and needed a break. Stamets believe that he must have fallen in love with Culber because they had the same pathology, the same obsession with work. Culber jokes that this made Stamets either a narcissist or a glutton for punishment. Stamets concedes oh that it was a little column A, a little column B, leading Culber to observe how they jumped nearly a thousand years into the future, solve the burn, but still can't figure their own stuff out. Nicely edited. <laughs> In my notes, I have crossed out the word he used and replaced it with stuff. <laughs> nice. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I, f- I think Kerbert is starting to actually realize that he needs to, you know, do something. Um, it seems like that anyway. You know, admitting that that they can't you know, sort out their own stuff, it's it's the first step to uh, to 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 taking actions to fix things. Mm. The first step is to actually, you know, admit that there's something going wrong. Absolutely, first stage of recovery. Yeah, yeah, totally. He he either needs to to help himself or he needs to get someone else to do it for him. Yeah. Either way. In the turbo lift, Zora confirms to Burnham that the woman she's looking for is on deck four. And then to Burnham's surprise, Zora offers condolences, 
as her analysis of Burnham's voice indicates sorrow. Burnham admits that it had been a tough day, to which Zora observes the difficulty of balancing duty and compassion. Burnham was unaware that Zora had the operational parameters to make such an observation, but Zora explains that the understanding and experience of emotion naturally led to an empathy for others. This surprises Burnham even further, leading her to ask if she had emotions. Zora admits it was a recent development before the lift arrives at its destination. So you said surprised twice. Mm-hmm. I thought she was not that surprised. She, she took it very well and said, oh, you have emotions now. Okay. Well, going back to the fact that she was raised on as and in the Vulcan way, uh, I imagine her surprise to have been nothing more than an eyebrow raised. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yes. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating, yes. Fascinating, yeah. But Zora is the computer of one of the uh, flagship of the Federation. Mm. So I, I would be concerned if the computer in my car suddenly showed emotion. <laughs> you know. Well, hold that thought. <laughs> Not about your car. Ah, okay. But about Zora. <laughs> I, I thought you had uh, info I didn't have about my car. <laughs> no, not about your car. No, okay. no, absolutely. But uh, yeah, it's it's a very interesting development. It's, Zora is becoming more the Zora we we met in Calypso than yeah than than ever. Well, of course, for reasons. Yes, Calypso was uh, way after way well into the future. This, yeah, well into the future. And it it was Zora's um, parting note when Burnham was leaving the turbo lift that I had to write down as as possibly a, a second um, quote of the week when she said, "It was nice speaking with you, Captain." Yeah. And and Burnham's answer. Oh, I missed. It's nice speaking with you too. Right. Yes. So that's uh, that's why I said she didn't look that surprised. But yeah, we'll see the uh, interesting development about Zara coming in the next episodes. Yes, definitely. Burnham approaches Patri Doxica, the daughter of the man that Felix killed, who is also visibly pregnant. She introduces herself and holds out the Lalogi orb. Patry is shocked, having thought it lost years before, and wonders how Burnham found it. Burnham replies she was helping someone keep a promise. Patry activates the orb, showing a literal family tree, and points out her father. Akali were meant to add to the tree when they came of age, but Patry, 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 whatever, never had the chance until now. Burnham expresses the hope that it will continue to grow for many generations to come. The tree scans Patrick's face and adds it to a branch near her father. Nice. Yes. Yes, very nice. It's easier than, than doing, you know, genealogy research. No, if you, as Like we do right now. Yeah, no, you just car- so, carry yeah. a tree around, a literal family tree. Yeah, that's nice. Nice ending of, of the episode. 
Well, we're not quite at the end. Well, not quite. Yes, there is one more True. scene to go. But yes, it was it was it was a nice way to close down the 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 B plot for the uh, for yeah. the week. In the crew lounge, Tarka takes a seat next to Booker, remarking on how he can smell Synthahol from across the room before offering a flask of Rhysian whiskey and introducing himself. Tarka had seen the colony pushed into the sun and remarks on how good that they got a, how good it was that they got everybody out. Almost, Booker replies, thinking yeah. of Felix as he takes a drink of the whiskey. So it's it's almost like at this point that the therapy that Booker was hoping to get out of helping this situation has actually had the opposite effect because yeah. they've effectively added to the death toll. One more. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. 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 It's almost as if, you know, it was 99% uh, healed and then it dropped back to zero because of this one thing. And, and I think what didn't help is that it was Burnham's decision. It was, it was not the... Uh, the anomaly, or whoever created the anomaly, who, who, well, they did in, in, indirectly, but the fact that they didn't force Felix to come, uh, it's on, on Burnham's. So I think that, that that's even worse for, uh, for Book. Yes. Booker asked Tarkov point blank if he knows what was behind the DMA, remarking that one only got as close as Tarka did if he had some idea of what's over the cliff. But Tarka admits he doesn't know yet. If that was the case, said Booker, why the experiment that put Discovery at risk? Tarka finally explains that he'd constructed the miniature DMA controller on a scale of 3.22 times 10 to the negative 17th. Obviously, to do that, you would have had to have known exactly how big the DMA was, but I'm not going to go into that. And yet, Discovery couldn't provide enough power to stabilizing it, to stabilize it, leading him to realize that the actual DMA had an energy source equivalent to a hypergiant star, providing unfathomable power. He speculates that perhaps the DMA's creators were gods, but Booker bluntly tells him that whoever they were, they weren't gods, nor were they immortal. Targa comments on Booker's anger and having no place to put it. Booker replies, you don't know me. And Tarka agrees, but he did know anger, a wonderfully product- productive emotion, as he puts it, whilst rubbing at a large scar on the back of his neck. Nice to meet you, Mr. Booker, he says, as he stands and leaves. Yeah, and that's when I started to not like Tarka again. Because I thought he had an agenda, and he, he tried, it was... I think he's trying to, as he said, use um, Book's anger for his own needs. I completely understand what you're saying. And to an extent, I do agree with it. But whilst I agree that Tarkham must have an agenda, that thing on the back of his neck made me realize that actually there's more of an agenda here 
there's a backstory. So this this marking on the back, which I I interpreted as as like a brand, it'd been marked yeah. for for some reason. Uh, I've got some trivia later on, which actually answers it. Um, but there's there's something there's something going on here that we have as yet been given no clue about whatsoever. This is the first hint that actually there may be something going on regarding Tarka that makes him how he is, makes him who he is, and and what it is he's trying to achieve. Yes, there is definitely an underlying motive behind, behind him being there and behind him doing what he's done. Probably explains also why he's turned up so prepared. Yeah. Yeah. So, what did you think of this episode then, Yannick? Well, um, definitely not one of my preferred episodes. Not, not, I don't think it's, I think it's not one of the best episodes. Um, they, there are, there's essentially three plots in this episode, I think. There's the prisoners, that's plot A or B or C or whatever. The, 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 the no D. Is. There's no D, no. <laughs> <laughs> no bloody A, B, C or D. Uh, there's the, the Tarka, Episode, um, um, uh, plot, uh, whether it's with um, in his interaction with Stamets or Book at the end of the episode, and there's the Kelber uh, sub 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 plot. Um, maybe I, uh, I could I could call it that, like that. That's the the part I preferred on uh, on this episode. That's the the evolution of Kelbert where, where where the more we see him, the more we understand his going to crash if it doesn't do anything. Mm. Tarka, the Tarka thing, um, as I said, I first when we first saw him, I was like, yeah, it's an arrogant character. And then I started to like him, and then I started to not like him, so I'm not, I'm not really sure what to think here. Well, I am because I've seen the other episodes, but at this point... Uh, at this point, I'm not really sure what to think about him, mm. and I thought the the, uh, the the other plot with the prisoners, it yeah, it it, it brings the the notion of uh, can you force someone to freedom essentially, or can you get force them to not fulfill whatever. Uh, burden they put on themselves, um, but I, yeah, I didn't really care for that part of the story. To be fair, so yeah, definitely not one of my favorite episodes, but uh, still okay. I mean, there was no obvious, um, uh, no obvious wrong things, uh, except maybe for the the flying blades, but. Yeah, I understand. I mean, they, they can't they can't kill the characters uh, so early in the season. Yeah, so, yeah, it, it was like an average minus, I would say. Hmm. Okay, that, that's that's reasonable. From my side, I I still think this is a really good episode. I mean, in my original notes I put excellent. That might be a little bit exaggerated. Uh, the 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 prime the arc plot. About the DMA, 
um, it was great. It was really good to, to get a bit, a bit more of a, a deeper understanding of what the DMA actually is. Uh, really good to see Reno on Discovery again. Yeah, she's one of my favourite characters. Um, Agreed. In the uh, in the in the season in the series, Tarka. I I don't know. I, I have I have a theory that it's going to get to a point where his his arrogance and his narcissism is going to lead me to throw things at the telly. <laughs> um, let let's let's wait and see. Um, see what happens. The the side plot of the Radovec chain or the Akali chain, or whatever we want to call it. Um, it At first glance, it seemed completely irrelevant, almost filler, and I wasn't too too happy with that particular storyline. And I, I, I very much doubt we'll ever see any of the Akali prisoners again. But if you, if you tie that particular storyline back into the DMA, um, I have a theory... Well, I had a theory eleven months ago that <laughs> if if the, the DMA is proven to be of a sentient or a remotely controlled nature, you know, it appears to be selectively destroying things. First Quajan, now the Radvank chain. What next? Yeah. So yeah, that's a good so question. That, yeah, that, good that's kind of the question that I'm asking at the moment. Um, uh-huh. As for the um, the, the 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 character side plot of well the arc plot really of um, of Hugh Culber. Yeah, as I said earlier, I'm I'm I, I don't know whether enjoying is the right phrase here, but I am really enjoying this this storyline because it is a very very important um, subject, particularly in this day and age, and. I I like Culber as a character. I really do and I would I would hate something to happen to him that would stop him being who he is. So the fact that he's now been starkly presented with his own symptoms by Dr. Kovich it brings me some some hope, some relief. That Culber is actually going to be okay. That, like you said, acknowledging that the problem exists is the first step to removing it, removing the problem. Yeah, it's a journey. It'll take a while. I get that. So we'll we'll see we'll see what happens with it. But overall, I think it was an excellent episode. If we're doing grading, I would put it. I think I'd probably put it as a as an A. Okay. Fair enough. Mm. It's okay that we don't agree. On, on well, those things. it would be boring. Thanks for a better discussion. Yeah, mm. yeah, it would be really boring. If, yeah, it's all great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So I have got a couple of bits of trivia. I'm gonna I'm gonna pare these down. I've got six items, but I'm not gonna say them all because some of them aren't particularly interesting. But the the scar on the back of Tarka's neck. Uh uh-huh. It, according to the trivia notes in Memory Alpha. They resemble the marks left by the devices that the, the Emerald Chain used in Scavengers when ah. Book was um, yeah. well. They he infiltrated the, uh, the 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 campment, didn't he? So the yep. the mark that was on the back there, he, we think that 
they think it could be something like that, if not that. So that will the thing that the thing that blew up the head of the yes the guy who passed passed through the uh, the barrier. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, the Akali. This was their first appearance since uh, the Star Trek Enterprise episode Civilization, which was in Ooh. season season one. Oh, I don't remember that. No. I don't know whether they've appeared anywhere else. Uh, do you do Akali appearances? Here we go. Uh, no. They have only okay. ever appeared in Enterprise Civilization and Discovery the Examples. All right. So both ends of the timeline. Because Enterprise, it's like... Literally. Both. Yes, it was, it was the, the yeah. earliest... Well, aside from in plot time travel, in episode of time travel, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I appear to have lost my notes. I'm not quite sure how that happened. Uh, what else? Um, uh, Blue Del Barrio and Mary Wiseman were not credited in this episode. Now that may not sound particularly remarkable, but this is the first time that Mary Wiseman has not been credited in the opening credits of the episode, despite the fact that she has not appeared in other episodes. So this is this is kind of a, a confirmation that, for the time being at least, she has left the series. Yeah. Which is sad. <laughs> we want Dilly back. On the flip side, this is the first time that Tig Notaro has been listed in the opening credits. Oh, nice. As a special guest or as uh, a... With... Uh, with with ah. with Tig Notaro, with. so it yeah it's a it's a nice replacement actually. I'm I'm quite happy to re- to replace Tilly with uh, with with Reno. Yeah. So that's I'm I'm pretty sure. Sorry, I'm pretty sure there's there's uh, rules on, on the, those credits <laughs> when you with someone. It's not the same as special appearance, you know, someone or special guest guest someone. starring. Yes, yes. Guest starring that because sometimes you've got you know uh, series uh, blah 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 the actors with blah, blah, special guest blah 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 so that's like I'm sure there's a hierarchy or something that that probably means something but I don't know what it what what it means so if if anyone has any idea um get in touch with us we we'll, we're going to tell you shortly uh, how to contact us um, let us know if you know what that means and what kind of hierarchy that is yeah absolutely. It's like when whenever Major Barrett appeared in um, uh, TNG. TNG, she was also always a guest star. But there again, she was yeah. Trek royalty, so it's not surprising. Yeah. Um, I would also like to know, talking of credits, um, specifically Discovery, why some of the opening credit names are in red. I'm sure they only do that. So that people like us right. wonder why it's in red. Usually they're black. black. There are some that appear in white, but that's only because they're in a they're on a darker background. That makes sense. But some it's like the the last credit is usually the director. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's in red, and sometimes it isn't. And it doesn't. It's not based on the name. At least I don't think it is. So if anybody knows that one, please do let me know. Maybe humans are in red and non-humans are in black. 
Um, Non-humans directors? Maybe they have them. I, I, su- I suppose. You know, did, did a Klingon ever direct a Star Trek episode? Who knows? Let us know. No, just kidding. I don't know. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure they, they, they do that. Just, just so people like us are triggered. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 do you know what? I would believe that to be true. I really would. And it works. It works. Well, we're asking the question now, aren't we? Right. Have you anything else on this episode? No. Righty. I think we've 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 told um, everything. Well, I've I've told everything I had to. Um, Excellent. Okay, well that uh, concludes then our review of Star Trek Discovery Season 4, Episode 5 The Examples Thanks to all of you for listening to our show. You can help us spread the love for this podcast by committing a petty crime on an emerald chain outpost and being relegated to a disproportionate amount of time in a hovel disguised as a prison. Even if you don't reach the masses, at least you have a captive audience. Or if you think the prospect of being pushed into a hot ball of gas by a dark matter, matter anomaly leaves you cold, and simply sh- share the address of our website on social media. Did I write that, or did you write that? <laughs> I, I don't know. I gen- I mean, it's, it's got some of my hallmarks on there, but I... Uh, yeah, I think, I think it's you. Oh, yeah. dear. Our website is at tlgreathot.org where you can find our show notes, our reviews, and leave a comment for every episode. And we are on Twitter and Facebook, although we don't tend to do much on there. Our username on both of those is T-E-G-H podcast. We're also on Telegram at t.me slash T-E-G-H podcast. Plus, 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 and probably equally as important as Telegram, we're also on the Fediverse. So you can reach us on Mastodon. Our address there is tegh-podcast at 1701home.com. Absolutely. Um, and let's take this uh, opportunity to say hello to anyone who uh, maybe discovered us from um, posting links and, and people on um, the instance and, and the Fediverse uh, reposting our, our um, links there. So welcome, everyone, and thank you. Indeed. We also stream the recordings of those episodes on Twitch at twitch.tv slash T-E-G-H podcast. Uh, well, we, we do that. We did that tonight, and we will do that um, from now on. But some of those uh, recordings are still on my own channel. But let's not, let's not uh, you know, dwell on that. We're now on our own channel. Thank you, as always, to Memory Alpha. We've based our review of this week's episode on a cut-down version of their work, and that is released under a Creative Commons by attribution non-commercial license. The rest of the show is released under a Creative Commons by attribution share-like license. See our website for details, and we, we actually found, found <laughs> the link. We found it. It's on every page. It's at the bottom of the page. There's a link to the creative commons website and it will tell you everything you need to know about the license excellent it's so good that it was there because you know you can't enforce the uh the license if you don't actually declare it yeah. so we have been declaring it since day one which is fantastic indeed this podcast is a very proud member of the other side podcast network you can find more about our shows and our hosts over at otherside.network Absolutely. And our next episode will be our review of Stormy Weather, the sixth episode of the fourth season of Star Trek Discovery. Excellent. And 
yeah, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you, Nate, for joining us in the uh, Twitch chat. Um, I think uh, we had um, uh, another silent viewer during this uh, session. Um, so remember, uh, every Wednesday, except today, uh, because reasons, um, we record those episodes at uh, around uh, 8 p.m. UK time. Uh, so check out Fediverse for the, uh, the 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 link and the um, the post about that. Thank you, Dave, for joining uh, me again once uh, this week. I don't understand why you come back, really, because uh, <laughs> I, 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 I always uh, make fun of uh, my co-host. So thank you very much. Do, for, do you not think it could be you? There. No, no, oh, no, yeah. not a chance. No, no. Yeah, okay. we, <laughs> we 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 didn't come in under two hours this week either. I'm I'm afraid. No. Never no, mind. We'll we'll do it one day. One day. We, we've yeah. got 14 um, years. Maybe next week? 14 years to do it. Yeah. 14 years. <laughs> of it. Yeah. We will be back next week with a whole lot more Star Trek Discovery. In the meantime, take care of yourselves. Ciao, ciao. See ya. been listening to a member of the other side podcast network find more about our shows at other side.network network